Welcome to In the Woods. I'm James Woods, aka William Moore, the author of Sparrows Valley and the Twisted Fairy Tale series, and co-founder of Majavi. If you need to get out of your own way and learn how to traverse the not-so-happy path in your career, I want to help you dig through the weeds and get to the roots of what may be holding you back from growing and succeeding in your industry. The mindset when you have to overcome when things don't go your way. So join me in the woods. Welcome to In the Woods. I'm James Woods, aka William Moore, the author of Sparrows Valley and the Twisted Fairy Tale series and co-founder of Majavi. If you need to get out of your own way and learn how to traverse the not so happy path in your career, join me in the woods. So today I have a, to me, a very special guest, my friend from, wow, we go way back to, I don't want to put you out there, but the 90s. Is actually one of my best friends from uh, Georgia Tech in college. The only person I actually still keep in contact with. Uh, he's been, um, he's worked a lot of different places. He's worked over at Georgia Tech, Nexus, Lexus. Uh, he's worked on a lot of um, teams over at Amazon, from Amazon Alexa to Amazon Go and Fire. It's, I'll, I'll let him go a little bit into that if he'd like to. Uh, it's funny how this is, I don't know if you remember this, how you and I actually met in college. Uh, the first day of school, when we were setting up our computers, I had actually asked you to help me connect to the network. And you came to my room, you hooked me up to the network, and I don't know what you did, if you did it from your room or if you did it from your computer, but you started sending me messages like you hacked my computer and kept sending me messages on my screen. Netson. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how we became friends. I was like, wait, what is going on here? So my first day of school at a tech school, someone, I don't want to say hack my computer, but you were sending me uh, messages on my computer. I'm like, yeah, me and this guy are definitely going to get along. (laughs) I forgot I used to do that, Netson. That's funny. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So let's kind of got to get into it. So I know you've, you were very technical guy, computer science, bachelor's, master's, the whole nine. Before you got to Georgia Tech, was that specifically what you're doing now? Is that kind of, was your focus or was that like your passion or did someone kind of talk you into it? Like, how did you get into the the computer science technical world? Okay. So that's, uh, that story is long. Um, because most of my childhood, I wanted to be a doctor. Um, I'm from a family of teachers. And so our big thing was, Hey, we need to have some kind of doctor in the family. And I actually liked it. I liked opening up feral pigs and, well, fetal pigs and frogs and everything else and looking at their insides and figuring out how that stuff worked. And so I used to read a whole bunch of biology textbooks. And I actually had a couple of good scholarships to various schools that had good pre-med programs before I decided to choose tech and go into computer science. Um... What was it that did it for me? So in 90, it was during the, it was 95, 1995 is when I kind of made the decision to swap. And so I'm going to go stay with my aunt and uncle that worked for IBM. And so my uncle worked there for, I don't know, he and he had been there for like years. My aunt, she used to work there, but then she kind of decided that she was going to focus on homemaking after she got pregnant with the first kid. And so pretty much I went to go stay with them for the summer. Um, my sister and I went down there and 
then I started interacting with 1995, 94 internet access, which means no World Wide Web. Um, so they were for IBM, they had access to Prodigy. So I'd be on Prodigy bulletin boards and playing with some of the other crazy take home projects my uncle may have had on this computer at work. I was like, oh man, this is actually kind of cool. Um, so I liked it. And so I'm like, okay, that's fine. But man, I don't have too much of a computer at home, but we'll see how this goes and play around with that. And I was like, all right. So my small town school started getting a number of computers around. I always like to play with them a bit. Um, not too much programming. I didn't start programming until I got to Georgia Tech. But there's lots of IT stuff that I would do with the things that kind of made them seem kind of cool. And then, although I still like the doctor thing, it was kind of like I started actually watching a lot of the stupid shows on the Science Channel. Lots of surgeries. I'm like, ew, that's weird. If I mess up something there, I might actually kill somebody. That could be fun. Um, but so there was that. And then watching Star Trek and all of the other engineering episodes. Jordy's cooler than Dr. Crusher. I got to say it. And so I kind of like dealing with that. And I was like, all right, well, I think I like this whole path of computer science, engineering, my old chemistry physics teacher in high school used to say, yeah, you should probably go into that. I think you like that. You probably do pretty well with it. I was like, okay, cool. I guess I'll go major at electrical engineering, computer science at Georgia Tech like a crazy person. We'll see how this goes. That's crazy. You and I have a very similar story in regards to why we went to Georgia Tech because my physics professor told me I was good at math and science and I gave him a list of the schools that I had scholarships to. Yeah. And a list of the schools that I wanted to go to. And he was like, yeah, you should go to Georgia Tech. You're good at math and science. I think you do good in uh, some technical for engineering or uh, computers. Yeah. So I, I didn't, I actually didn't know that about you. So now when you were saying you were working with your, not working with, your uncle and your aunt were at IBM, they would take home projects. Was it more like fiddling, like building things? Because you said you didn't actually computer program until you got to Georgia Tech. So I don't know. So I know my uncle worked on Prodigy, and I think he may have been working on OS2 Warp at the time. So you've got this computer that can boot into Windows, and he, like, shows you how to get everything booted into Windows. And, of course, since you're a freaking rebellious teenager, you boot into the other thing because that's just what you do. So you start up OS2 Warp, and it's like, this interface is way different than the previous one. And you start mucking around. You see the commands are different. You see that this isn't DOS. And it's like, oh, that's actually interesting. How does this all work? And so you read a whole bunch of books at the library. Um, these people, this family didn't watch TV. So since they didn't watch TV and you're there for the summer, then you pretty much had to do either whatever they had set up for the day or you had to find your own sources of entertainment because you can't expect two adults, one that works a full-time job and one that has a six-year-old and a four-year-old. I think that was, yeah, it should have been six and four at the time, I think, maybe three. Yeah, they're not going to completely entertain you. So you got to get into your own little trouble. And so there are people next door that you can always get into trouble with. But so, since I lived in Boca Raton, they were. Oh, Florida. Now yeah. you've worked on, you've worked at different levels of companies. You've worked at Georgia Tech, which, I mean, I know they have a lot of technical departments, but it wouldn't be considered like one of the big four, big five companies. You worked at Nexus Lexus, where you worked on a lot of cool projects there. You were telling me about Lexus. It's Lexus Nexus. Oh, it's the other way around. Sorry, Lexus Nexus. <laughs> <laughs> and and also at um, you worked at Amazon. 
I've worked at a lot of different technical companies from pharmaceutical to fintech to e-commerce to entertainment. Was the interview process and getting into those companies, was it a, a, a big, huge difference uh, between working at one place and working from the company, you know, the Amazon conglomerate that everyone knows? Was it a, a huge difference in regards to what you needed to know technically and prepare for for those type of interviews? Oh, yeah, because remember, we're kind of old. So the interview process has changed a lot from those. So for Georgia Tech, my interview process was talk to Vicky, um, and she was like, hey, you're a student, you know stuff. So I've, I've wrote all this stuff in this email about why I should get this job because I couldn't find a work-study job worth anything at Tech. And so I saw this ad, and it was like, okay, let me talk. To, let me send her an email. Um, so I sent her an email. We had a basic interview to see what work would be like. She's like, yeah, focus on your classes first. And I'm like, no, I'm really trying to get paid, but we'll see how you feel about these 40-hour work weeks I work, even though I'm still a student. Work study, which was annoying, was you could only work a certain number of hours. Right. You work for a department outside of work study, they didn't care. So, <laughs> oh, so you didn't do work study. You worked directly no, with the school. Right, because I couldn't do, I couldn't find a work study job. And so, although it was a student assistant job and still considered a student job, it wasn't through the federal work study program. So, it's like, okay, well, I got this job and I can work more hours than the work study hours and I can get paid more than most of the work study jobs. I guess I'm going to do this. So, that was just a small conversation hiring for a student job. And then, after working for, what was it, Educational Technologies at the time, then Herbert Baines, who was the director of the events, what were they called? They were called AD or the Advanced Development Group in OIT. They used to work on a whole bunch of random experimental stuff that probably would be taken over by ResNet or GTRI or one of the other teams around. And so just basic little OIT things. So like, okay, um, let's do that. And so that's when all the craziness, super fun, super learning stuff happened. Um, that interview process was like, hey, can I come work for you? He's like, sure. Like, all right, cool. Because he had been trying to take me from educational technology for a long time. And so keeping that job after college was pretty easy. Um, and considering I failed my Microsoft interview at the time, it was like, all right, well, that's fine. So a lot of it had to do in the beginning was more about networking rather than right. technical. Right. Lots of it was mostly networking um, because my Microsoft interview was, hey, I'm thinking of a rich person. Who is it? And um, yeah. <laughs> now, the Amazon interview, I've I've had conversations. I've, I've had interviews with, well, conversation with people at Amazon, Google, well, not actually, not. well, I was speaking to you because I know you conduct interviews and I've spoken to people that worked at Google and I was invited to do a couple interviews and they told me the process. What was that process like just for someone who may be thinking to work there later? Because I know it's so, not a it's not a one day thing. It's no, it's no. it's a process. Right. It's a process. And my Amazon interview process was definitely a process. And I made it a process <laughs> for a reason. Definitely a big one. It was a process of mine in there. So. It is your typical FANG interview process where you generally, I think these days, most of the time people do online assessments, but back when I got hired, it was mostly two phone screens. You might do a take home assessment and then you 
go in for a full day interview. And then if they have more questions, they might send you a home, take on assessment. So my first Amazon interview was a phone screen. And uh, I set that up with the recruiter and I'm like, Amazon's not going to hire me, whatever. So I did that and I made sure I scheduled it at a time that was convenient for the interviewer. So make sure that it's not bordering lunch, not first thing in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and not really at the end of the day when somebody's ready to go home. So <laughs> I think it would have been 2, 2 p.m. Pacific or something, 2.30 p.m. That was an hour long. And then I set up another one probably about six weeks later, maybe four weeks later. That was another one that was probably at about 2 p.m. Uh, I was working at LexisNexis at the time, so that was fine. And so then they offered to find me out. I was like, okay. Well, I guess I get to take two days off from work, so I guess I'm going to go over here. So I did that. That was a 12 to 5 p.m. interview where you were just in different rooms talking to different people an hour long. And generally, it was – I remember most of the questions. Um, there were – there was an interview with the hiring manager at the time. He asked me to design a parking garage. No, not design a parking garage, write the test for a parking garage. So that was a pretty easy design question for the most part, design through test-driven development. You're not going to get that interview at Amazon anymore, uh, unless, of course, you just find somebody that's cool like that. Um, the second one was pretty much do word ladders, which since I hadn't done any graph algorithms or anything since um, college, okay, there may have been some consulting job. Anyway, it had been like maybe five years since I'd done that. So I flat up said, you know, it's been ages since I've done that. I know what I need to do after sitting up there struggling on the whiteboard for a while, but I don't know whether I should use this or this. And I don't actually remember all the details of it. He's like, if you had told me that I probably would have like asked you something else, but, um, he asked me something else. If we managed to get that done in the last 10 minutes, that was fine. Um, and then everything else was design, Ticketmaster, design, flashcards, and some basic stack stuff. So that's fine. Um, this is why I like to say in the interview process, there's a lot of luck involved because luckily I interviewed people that care about the same things I cared about. So that was definitely a lot of luck on that situation because you know, further in, if it had been any other group, I probably would have gotten into a whole bunch of extra graph problems that I did not remember how to solve. Yeah, wouldn't have been there. So now in that you've you've kind of moved up at a consistent pace working at all these different companies. Was there anything that you would say that kind of stood out was why you've been uh given the opportunities to work on these cool projects or to lead or have a, a very important role? And a lot of these different projects you worked on Alexa, then you worked on go, and then you worked on, you know, uh, AWS, and a lot of different projects you worked on. Was there something that you would kind of recommend to someone who's going into tech field on how you were able to continuously move up? Cause I know it's not always just about, I'm very good at dev. There are other elements, uh, to, to gather the, the, the attention of the, the hiring people, the people that are involved in moving you or promoting um. you. So generally, I like to say that this probably had a lot to do with the consulting job I had between Georgia Tech and the satellite receiver company I worked for um, in between, uh, in between LexisNexis and Georgia Tech. So I worked for three different companies then. Um, 
There was Progressive, which was the consulting company. Then I worked for Caneva for eight months. You probably don't know what Caneva is. Um, Can't say I do. It's a. Uh, it wanted to be Second Life. Um, it's an online mo. It's an online mo. I can't really call it that. Um, it's an online game, 3D graphics. Um, it's actually created by Chris Kloss. Um, you know who that is, right? Can't say I do. Okay, he's one of George Tech's largest donors right now. Okay, that definitely would have known him. Right. Of, yeah. The new college of computing, he has a building there and everything else. He's a George Tech dropout that, um, well, he got kicked out because of hacking and the Oscar to change his grades. <laughs> Several years before we were students. So, right. <laughs> well, that's the story I've been told. I don't know if that's actually true, but he's a large donor. Anyway, um, so I worked for that company for almost a year, and then I went to go work for Wagner, which is, a, I like to call it a 30-year-old startup at the time. They built satellite receivers. It was 30 years at the time because they started the year we were born. Um So I think the thing that I like to attribute to how I've been able to move around is being able to deal with multiple unknown technologies you're not familiar with and learning how to actually be able to build things up super fast with those. Um, so at the consulting company, I definitely learned a lot of that. Um, I may have learned a lot more of that at Georgia Tech while a student, but that company really did put me on my toes with having to do a whole bunch of crazy stuff. Like my first project was in Pascal, um, which, you know, at tech, we didn't do Pascal. So no, we didn't. No, no. <laughs> yeah. Cause that was one of the questions I was, I was actually going to ask you next is each one of those technologies. I know they, it may be a different language. It may be similar language. I'm not sure exactly how it works there. And I know all of them are totally different technologies. Now you say that's a skill set you definitely need to have is being able to work into something that's unfamiliar. Is that something that you can, is that an innate skill or how do you develop that skill of being able to figure it out? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, is that innate or is that something you develop? Ooh, that's a question. Well, I mean, I think you kind of learn that as a kid. The problem is that if you stay too rigid to one's mode of thinking over time, then that just becomes the way you are. And you, if you are that strict, then you're not going to be able to deal with change. And unfortunately, things change way too much, too fast. And people always want to ship out their brand new thing, get you adapt to it. And so when people, everything picks up and you just have to deal with that. Um, so my question of don't get too old and too stuff. I don't know how you learn that, but I don't know how you get to be stuck in one way to begin with. Actually, that's just kind of weird, but I know it yeah. does happen. So there might be some innateness in there. Because um, I know every company that I've worked at, whoever the tech lead is, if I'm the tech lead or someone else, they always have their certain way of doing things. They like a certain tech stack. They like a certain design pattern. Some people like uh, different techniques and patterns that others don't like. And it's a matter of trying to figure out what your manager or your engineering manager likes sometimes when it comes to PRs, because you may think that it's the perfect code base of what you've written, 
But then the person who's doing the PR was like, mm, I don't really like your uh, style guide of how you're coding it. And you have to switch things up. So oh, there's a, Oh, go ahead. No, keep going. So there's that aspect of not so much learning a new technology, but also learning how to work with the style guide and sometimes ego of the people that you're working with. Have you ever right. had to face that type of issue in, in the tech world? Oh, yeah. Okay. So I will say that a number of my jobs, actually, it wasn't until Amazon that I deal with extremely opinionated guidelines to how to actually build things, which is, I think when the guys at Wegner, uh, when the old Bell Labs guys was trying to move us towards that to a very strict opinionated deal so everybody can agree on things. And so being able to actually deal and conform to opinions about how things should work, I mean, it's pretty much the same thing of being able to adapt to new technologies. You need to be able to do that and not be too stubborn about it. There are usually reasons, historical reasons, and other political issues that may cause people to say, I'm going to stick with this strict pattern, and that's how we're going to move things. Um, and it's not that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just something you need to be able to adjust to. And if you can't, then it's going to be a hard struggle. Um, now, back to the question of whether that's innate or learned. Um that could be that could also be learned the reason i say that could be learned is because of the maybe everybody just needs to have an exercise where they have to do multiple jobs in one day and as a kid i got that during my awful experience um on a field trip <laughs> You have to say, you have to tell me how, how that plays in. Okay. So the field trip was, uh, so there's this museum in Georgia, in Tifton, Georgia, called Agorama. And schools can have students go and work at Agorama. It's a night, it's an early 20th century type farm. So it's not having any slave, slavery implications in there. And so basically your school or whole grade can go in everybody works at the different little exhibits in at, at Agrama. So you basically dress like somebody did in the early 20th century, 1920s or whatever, and you do a bunch of farm work. And so if you happen to be unlucky like I was, this is what I get for hanging around what some people would call less desirables at the time. Um, you may end up shoveling fecal matter um, first thing in the morning. Um, if you're a boy, if you are a girl, you'll probably end up making soap or sewing or something. Probably making soap and getting ready to cook breakfast slash lunch for the people out in the field doing shoveling fecal matter and dealing with horses. You might even get to make horseshoes if you're in one of those lucky classes, but I was not in that lucky class. So you do that, then you do make soap because, every, because you got to make the milk and everything else so the girls can actually make the bread, whatever. And so you can have butter. So you milk a cow, you shovel fecal matter, and you do all of this all at, I guess, within two hours. This was a field trip? Yeah, this was a field trip. It's a fun field trip. It's an experience. This was a field trip. So you do all that, then you eat lunch. And so there are two different houses you can eat at if you're with the less desirables. This was an interesting exercise in segregation. It taught me a lot about class differences, um, but... 
Anyway, so this topics. was actually so this was actually your uh, first uh, class in jack of all trades or multitasking, uh, right? Right. So you do all this, and then after that, then you get you get two more jobs that same day. So I think I had to afterwards. We, I know we had to clean out one of the stalls for hay. So we did that, and then we made grits at the end of the day. And that was when I finally figured out that grits were made out of corn. Um. <laughs> that is one thing I, I try to explain to people. Some people say it, and, and it may be in relationships, it may be in work, but I always tell people when the when you, especially when you first get out of college, those first like few years, that's when you have to figure out exactly what you want to do in regards to specializing in something. And even if you do specialize, you also have to be open minded enough to learn how to do other things outside of what you are, which kind of adds value to your bio and your resume. So then when you decide to do other things, uh, so that multitasking thing from a young age, I, I could definitely see how that would help the skill set. Yeah. But as you get older, that's definitely a, a skill that I yeah. feel everyone needs to have because you right. never know. You never yeah. know what your job is going to tell you what you need to do. You never know. And I'll give you a perfect example. When I was at uh, DirecTV, they merged with AT&T. So a lot of people got moved to different teams that they didn't expect to be on. Right. The same thing happening now with E-Trade and Morgan Stanley. There was that merger. And because of that, people are being moved to different teams. One organization that might emerge in might have a, a different priorities. So the project you're working on might get killed or might get kind of yeah. moved into another team. So there's all these different aspects that working in the corporate environment, you have to be open-minded enough to know, I may have to be flexible to do something else, even though this is what I'm really good at, because yeah. that may not be what they need me for. Right. Right. And you have to be able to learn how to do that. Um, what advice Alexis, would you, Oh, go ahead. What are no, Lexus? Uh, Lexus Nexus had a big example of that, which was unfortunate because a lot of people lost a lot of jobs when they bought another company uh, where choice point was the big, super company. Everybody wanted to work for Lexus Nexus bought choice point. And said, okay, so we like a lot of the stuff you guys have, but it's all Cobalt mainframes. And right now, this company we bought has this cool back office system that does a lot of the things your mainframes do. So we need to port this over to their back office system for the most part. And my job as a contractor at the time was to implement a lot of those so we could actually get rid of a lot of the expensive mainframes and get them to be modern standards. Unfortunately for the COBOL developers, that means they were about to lose their jobs. Ah, uh, yes. So a lot of people had to either figure out what their next job was going to be or learn the new stack. But let's just say a lot of people didn't get to learn the new stack. But if you are able to either learn the new stack or if you can actually, if you know that you don't know anything about that, then if the people doing the converting are willing to actually assist you with moving to that. I actually helped a few of the people figure out how to actually work in the new language and everything else while I was there. So that was kind of cool. And what take ownership of a few things. Then, yeah, what then advice would you kind of give someone that wanted to pursue a career in tech? Because I know when I first started, it was brutal because I didn't go the same route that you did. I took some random, my first actual tech job was um, 
I was a, an executive assistant that had Java on my resume. So the guy hired me and I never did anything that had to do with uh, being an, ex, uh, an executive assistant. Literally from day one, he had me programming uh, a backend tracking system for Cisco using uh, Java. So I don't even know how I got that job, but that was actually my first entry point in. But what advice would you kind of give someone that wants to get into that career, rather be getting some experience in college or which, how should they approach it when they get into the actual field or the mindset that they should have if they actually want to make it a lifelong career? Whew, that's actually pretty hard. Um, a long time ago, I used to have a good answer for that. But my most recent intern at Amazon made me realize that all the answers I used to have were kind of hard because right now um, there's a lot of stuff to learn. I don't have a good, clear answer. And so he was coming in from a, I think it was, he just finished up his sophomore year and he, um, he goes to UCF. And so they've got a good computer science program, but the majority of the things they learn are in their junior, senior year. So he had taken a couple of basic computer science classes. I told him he was probably going to come up in this conversation. Um, <laughs> and so he comes to Amazon and is like, man, what are they teaching you guys these days? Their program is not in Unix. So he had to learn some Linux real fast. And on top of all the Linux stuff that at Georgia Tech, you kind of have to be forced to learn or you're going to fail out. Um, well, way back when we were students, I think you can actually get away with doing everything in Windows now and be just fine. Uh, but not, but yeah, not on top, not only on top of that, but you have to learn Docker and Kubernetes and all this other good stuff while you're there. It's a, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, and trying to figure out what all those things are is it can be a daunting task. Um, so how would I recommend somebody get started? Um, what would I change if I got started? Um, aside from having rich parents that could give you access to stuff, but then also make sure that you also aren't lazy. So you need to have prudent, non-spoiling rich parents that can give you access to stuff, but make you think you don't have it so that you're actually willing to do the work to figure out what else you need to do in order to be able to move around. So um, aside from that, uh, what would I do differently? Because the reason I'm asking you is because you've entered the world and you're kind of the entry point for people coming in because you're that interviewee. So you kind of have two different perspectives, which is why I'm asking you this question. Right. Okay. So to get the job is very different from have, being able to do the job. <laughs> totally different. <laughs> Unfortunately, if you want to work for a fan company, if you want to work for a sane company that may not pay as much um then you probably can go through with the regular learn some computing stuff be able to build your i would say just build a build a basic website that takes in some data puts in a database and allows you to crunch some numbers and put something in excel that might be the easiest way to do it and that will get you to learn a whole bunch of things like um how to actually move data around how to actually program something build something you like, or maybe build an iPhone app, or just find something that you want to either maybe not necessarily build yourself, even though that would be very good inspiration, um, but maybe 
building something else you've seen out there and it's like, I could probably do that. And you just have to make yourself, force yourself to learn everything involved in doing that. And I think that would be a pretty good entry point. Um, if you're an adult already, if you're a kid, you've got all the ideas in the world. So build one of those things, get it on your iPhone or your computer, show one of your parents. They're probably not going to know what they're looking at, but just do it. Would you feel uh, certain technologies that we didn't have to deal with back in the day, but we do now like orchestration to Kubernetes, you have containerization with Docker's. You have all these like message buses with ActiveMQ. And do you feel those are requirements for people getting into the field now? Or is that something you can learn after you get into it? You can learn that definitely when you get into it, but you have to be able to adapt to learning that stuff super fast and on the fly. Gotcha. Not necessarily on the fly. You get time, but well, hopefully you get time. I can't say you always get time. But yeah, those are things you can learn while, as long as you know, Basics of programming, um, some good computer science fundamentals, know how the internet works, know how your operating system works, kind of, sort of, and be able to deal with Windows versus Unix stuff, then I think you'll be fine. Um, I actually was listening to this interview by, uh, I'm probably going to butcher his name, uh, Tyson Degrassi or Neil, it's Degrassi, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, no, and yeah. he, he made this very good point uh, about the commencement ceremony. And we always hear the term, but I never really paid attention to commencement. It basically means the beginning. Yeah. So he was explaining that when you finish college, that's the finish. But the commencement ceremony is now you actually begin to learn. So yeah. in my opinion, college wasn't meant to regurgitate information. It's to teach you how to learn. So yeah. that when you do get in the field, you can figure it out and whatnot. Right. What are some of the resor- the resources that you've used? Because I know for a fact you we've all learned a lot more after college than we did when we went college. Because a lot of stuff we learned in college, we were we learned what Java was at one point two. Now they're on Java ten eleven. So there was so many different changes from when we started to where yeah. they're at now. What are some of the resources that you use to keep you up to date on the cutting edge of what you're going to need in the workforce? Ooh, cutting edge. Yeah, I'm not necessarily the best in the cutting edge right now. Um, because Amazon has its own things and its own viewpoints and perspectives on the cutting edge. So we kind of get that filtered to us. Um, so I'm going to say something that's very unpopular, but is very obvious. Very unpopular. The freaking library. Uh What about the library? The library, libraries get a lot of bad rap because you got the internet, so you don't have to really do research worth anything. But basically librarians are, they are very good at organizing information. And so they can tell you where things are. And there's always going to be some interesting book that may be outdated, but it'll give you a glance into what people were thinking and some of the motivations behind various things. Like all this message bus stuff is all research done by PhDs that graduated when we were born. Um, so, <laughs> right. So, if you can reference some of those and you kind of get a big, deep foundational understanding of what some of the newer things are um, and what's so cutting edge about, this is because all this research was done a long time ago and now that has been 
engineer to be what do I want to say? Um, what am I looking for? It's in a easily consumable format for you to actually digest and actually use on a regular day to day basis. As far as computing is concerned, then you get the motivations behind it and you need a deeper understanding of that. Now, knowing what those things are and actually how to use them, that is, that's basically Twitter, read some medium posts and find some tweets about something. Um, I do a lot of searching around, so there's always that, but you may also have to actually try to build something in the thing and that might be the best way. That's definitely going to be the biggest way. You get your little sample project up and running. You see how that works. And then you just build whatever you are want to build in your spare time on top of that. And see, learn to sense it out. That's actually a very good point. That's one thing that anyone that I mentor, I always tell them, if you ever want to learn something, build it. So, for instance, when I wanted to learn promises back in the day, I actually built an A-plus like certified promise uh, mm-hmm. When I wanted to learn Redux, I built my own state management system. Yeah. When I wanted to learn Re- React and basically anything, I wanted to learn more about uh, computer languages. So there was a couple books that I had uh, purchased and I created my own uh, programming language using Golang called Scribe. I, I wouldn't recommend using it, but it was it was more of a project for me so I could get a better understanding of what was the stuff that I was going to work on. Right. A- a- and in regards to those basics, you made a very good point about a lot of things that we're working on now are considered cutting edge, but the people who created the initial idea that's gotten to the point it is now were way back in the day. If you think of Golang, the three people who I can't remember their name offhand, I'm probably going to get slagged for it later. But the three people who created Golang were one of the original creators of C language, one for the uh, the, the JVM, uh, the the, compi- the just-in-time compiler, and there was another one that created something else. And when they created those languages way back in the day, they Google kind of brought them together and said, we want you to create a language that's more modern. So yeah. it was basically the same principles created by people who created what we've been using all this time. They just tried to update it and make it a little easier for us to use now. Yeah. So bottom line is I'm trying to say is a lot of the technologies that we use now, if you can find a white paper or those, you know, the, the, the documents on the, the mentality or the thought process on what they originally created back in the day, they're all pretty much the same concepts, computer programming principles or computer programming principles. Yeah. So yeah, lots of experimentation. You definitely have to be able to do that. Now I am a bit unfair because I do have an unfair advantage because I do actually talk to people that may have worked on some of those things a long time ago, or I have talked (laughs) to some of those. So there's that. Uh, But yeah. I, same thing. I, I had a conversation. I, I used to work at uh, Nickelodeon Viacom and all the seniors on the team that I was on, we got to have a conversation with a guy, Guillermo Roche. If you'd have just told me his name, I would have know, never known who he was, but he was a creator of Socket.io, Next.js, yeah. and a bunch of these huge frameworks. If you ever met the guy, coolest guy in the world. He was talking about camping and when I came to meet, I didn't even know who he was. It was like, yeah, it's Guillermo Roche. I'm like, cool. But the thing is, after I figured out who he was and I was able to have that conversation and kind of getting pick his brain a little bit about certain technologies, I was like, wow, when you actually have the opportunity to create, uh, to speak to a thought leader or creator of the technologies that you're using, you definitely have a totally different perspective and respect for the, the stuff that you're working on. 
Yeah. So if if you can find those people on Twitter, like for instance, Guillermo Watch is a really cool guy. He'll definitely respond. Well, I can't speak for him, but I mean he's he's pretty open in regards yeah, he to may not respond after this. Depends. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, now in your career, I know you've worked with a lot of different people. Were there any mentors or people that kind of help you along the way? I know you said you you spoken to some of the creators, some of the technologies we use. Did some of them have an influence on you, or was it maybe a hiring manager, a teacher? So I've had a number of mentors, um, way more than I like to, than people would believe. But yeah, I've had a large number of those. Um, some of them have given me advice on various situations. Others, I just want to be able to do stuff, do some of the, kind of the same things that they've been able to do. Um, language may be different, but generally you do learn a lot from people that are you do need some mentors um how did you uh, approach those mentors was it you were working with them or did you kind of make the initiative to go to like a meetup and find them most of the time i was working with them or i may have just bumped into them in passing uh, others my current Amazon mentor, I actually just reached out to him because so most companies have these tools to say, hey, you can find a mentor or whatever. Those tools may work. Those tools may not work, but they're necessarily the most helpful because it's just like, OK, or you might randomly get assigned one. And it's like, well, OK, so the mentee has to do the majority of the work and that's fine. And so if the mentee doesn't know what they need help with, then they're not going to get that much help. So it has to be someone that you can actually respect. You like the things that they do and you want to just know more about it. Um, so they can help you with various situational things, or you might see some of what they do and you might just have to ask them like, um, I talk about how you did this, why you did this. And then you just keep doing it and they may not even know they're a mentor, but they may be, uh, or you can be like, all right, you're officially my mentor. And I'm going to ask you all these weird life situation questions. And I was like, good stuff and how you came to this. And I'm like, they're usually pretty cool. About it. People are usually pretty good about it. That's actually a pretty good point. I never really thought about that because <laughs> you really don't know what you don't know. So right. just finding a random mentor may not be beneficial to you. But if it's someone that you work with that kind of knows a little bit about you or you have it, the project that you're working on, those are people that may be able to give you some insight on some of the things that you don't see. Or right. they may be working on something that you want to know more about so they can give you information from their perspective. Right. And so in those situations, when it's somebody that you have to see, then you kind of have to come up with a strategy for giving them some benefit out of it besides touchy-feely stuff. Um, you probably are going to buy them breakfast or something, but that's fine. And then you start having these breakfasts, and it's like, yeah, okay, I'm tired of this young person paying for my breakfast all the time, so I'm about to start asking them. So then it just usually ends up becoming pretty much decent formal informal mentorship for the most part um but yeah so now here's one question i like to ask everybody from i, I like to get people's different perspective from a lot of different industries mm -hmm. you're in my opinion the, the tech guru guy accepted or not accepted not my problem All right. are there any myths are there any things about your field or your profession that people believe in industry that you would say nah that's not really the way it is are there any myths that you would like to debunk about it? Ooh, and which myth to debunk? Um, I would talk about meritocracy, but in meritocracy, it, it is actually rewarded. 
it's just that you just have to deal with nepotism first. Um, so there's that. Um, I don't want to talk about that. Or what miss do something. you hate? What miss do you hate? <laughs> I think the the one that used to always bother me the most is from a front end perspective, kind of working with designers. Uh, designers always believe that we can create anything that they feel like designing. <laughs> so from a design perspective, it looks like, oh man, this is a great idea. Our customers will love this. And then when you give it to a developer, it's like, you really want me to build this? Like, this is not going to work. Like physically, this cannot be done. I mean, this would go, that would make me go to my point about, be, about we know how to do everything. Um, I would like to go there, but that one's obvious. We don't know everything, even though a lot of us say we do, and that we always have the answers. I don't think anybody knows what they're really doing. Um, it's just more of a, let's put this together, let's make it work, and let's figure out the problems when we get it there. Um, yeah, that's one of the... That's one of the things where you have to know enough about what you're doing, but chances are whatever feature that business gives you might be something you've never done before. So they assume you're the expert. It's just it's something you've never done before. So you have to gain the skill of learning how to figure it out. Right. Um, which you learned that in physics, unfortunately. <laughs> so one. Um, keep going. Did I stump you on that question? I mean, Mr. Debunk, I mean, you almost gave me a few pointers. Like, I really hate the, you can build anything you can imagine. That's a perfect one. I, I hate Cause, that. Because uh -uh. I, I don't think I've ever worked on a project where that wasn't the case. Where that because you have to understand, case? you. no, well, that didn't happen. So, oh, so what happens is you have business. You have the developers and you have your designers. So your business is thinking of, oh, man, this would be a great idea for our product and for a feature. And there have been cases where instead of coming to the development team, they're just put in a documentation and start making tickets for it. And then when you actually have the conversation with them, you explain to them, OK, well, we may be able to do A, B and C, but D like there's no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> because well, they have the mentality that whatever they give to the developers, if they can think of it, we should be able to create it. Right. And I know we like to sell that. We can do that. But there are physical limitations to things. Um, as like I had to tell someone that you can't start charging someone's phone as soon as they get into their house because if you start doing that, you're going to start killing people. Um like what do you mean like we're gonna have both electricity like flying through the house like i don't know if you really want that um so you can charge your phone uh it might miss and you might lose an organ or something so yeah um so one of the things that i one of the uh questions that I, I like kind of just to switch it up if you and i could switch places you're the interviewer i'm the interviewee is there a question that you would have liked me to ask you that I didn't ask? Or is there a question that you would have liked to ask me? Ooh. 
question that you asked me that I would, I mean, what myths do you want to debunk? Well, I kind of went over the one that I did. That was a big one. Yeah, that was good. Actually, what made you do this? Well, so we kind of got the story of how you did computer science. However, there is a question. I don't know if you're at liberty to answer this. Answer this. Uh, what made you switch your major from E to CS? Ah, so I don't know if you knew that when I was at Georgia Tech, I had the co-op uh, co-op program. So I was at school I, I six know, months. I know, I, I know you went to Delco. You went Delco. To Detroit. Yeah, I know you went to Delco Electronics. <laughs> you went to Detroit, and you came back with this woman. And then after yeah. that, I've actually James told Lewis that kind disappeared. Of sort of disappeared. Um, disappeared from college. But in regards to, <laughs> I, I've actually told that um, story, but and in the prior episode. But <laughs> the question was, now you just, I just had a brain fart on what the question was. Oh, how did I, why did I switch to CS? So what happened was when I was at Delco, there was a project that I was working on on a barcode label printer. And there was this guy who created this, you know, amazing program to connect to the barcode label printer. So one day he ended up going on vacation. So when he went on vacation, he was like, while I'm gone, I need you to set up the printers to the software that I created. And I was like, okay, cool. So he left, went on his vacation. I'm starting to configure it, to connect it to the Mac. And I couldn't get it working. Like it just wouldn't connect for whatever reason. So I ended up calling the, the printer company and I was asking, I said, I have such and such printer. Uh, I have this software and for whatever reason, it's not connecting. I don't know if it's the drivers. I don't know what it is, why it isn't connecting. So he explained to me, he said, well, first off, our printer doesn't work with Mac. I was like, yeah, it does. Everyone here is using it. He was like, no, our, pro, our printers only work with Windows at the time. Right. And I was like, oh, okay. So I've, I'll figure it out. So I ended up hanging up the phone, couldn't figure it out. The guy comes back from vacation and I say, yeah, call the printer company. They said that the printer doesn't work with Mac, but... We have a bunch of them that work with Macs. He was like, no, no, no. He was like, don't call them. They don't know that it doesn't work with Mac. I was like, then how are you making it work with Mac? He's like, that's why they hired me. He was like, I'm a computer science major, and I created a driver so that the, the this entire program I created in C so that the Mac could speak to the printers. Ah. And, and I was like, you can do that? He said, when you get to the kind of level, I mean, he was kind of flexing a little bit. But when you get to the level that I'm at, he was like, you can, and you learn the communication protocols between a computer and a specific device, then you can create pretty much anything you want. And that kind of sparked, he was like, man, because one thing about that job I learned is I did not want to be an electrical engineer. Like it was, to me, it was just, it was cool and labs and physics and all the different engineering courses I was taking at Georgia Tech. But when I actually got into the work field and was actually doing engineering, I said, there's no way I'm going to do this every day for the rest of my life. This is bo- to me. Some people, it's exciting to me. It was just boring me to death. But from the computer science wise, I was like, man, this is awesome. But I was also so far in engineering. I didn't want to start over. I know there was CS 1501, 1502 and C and all. So what I did was I actually made computer science my minor and I took a lot more courses than I was supposed to. Okay. All right. So I basically made all of my electives were computer science. Okay. I stopped taking anything else. And all I just right. started taking specific computer science courses. 
And if you had switched to Compi, you probably would have had way more computer science courses than the, you probably would have been further along, aside from the Calc 4 linear Alps thing. Um, and thinking about that dude, man, all he did was just write a PostScript driver to Windows LPT. That's all he did. Oh, it's he probably did. Fancy. But to me, you think about yeah, it, no. I'm, a seven, I'm a 17, 18-year-old kid, and the guy yeah. just created something that the company who, who basically created their printer didn't even know it could be possible. Well, probably someone at the com- company did, but the guy that I got to on the phone had no idea what I was talking about. And to me, that was mind-blowing. And that literally changed it. So when I came back to school, the only thing I could think about was I want to do computer science, period. Yeah, I would have ticked you off if I had told you I had done that uh, so, that summer because I had to get Linux to like, actually print to my stupid printer. And it couldn't. So I had to do some weirdness like that. But... I didn't put anything past you in college. (laughs) There was you and there was a guy named Ashok. I don't know if you remember. He was a CS major also. But y'all two were my go-to guys for all of my computer science courses, just because some of them were absolutely ridiculous, because you guys would disappear, because Georgia Tech, if people don't know, was uh, very difficult. So if you were a CS major, there were certain courses where you physically would not see your friends for the entire semester. They literally just disappeared because they only had time to work on the project for their major. Man, all you had to do was ask Brian where I was. Ah, uh, he knew. Uh, well, did it for him was um, 1502, actually. Uh, that was funny. <laughs> oh, he left out of 1502 was a C class, correct? No, that was the Java class. That's what made him switch from Oh, Compu that was Java. Yes. 1501 was pseudocode. Yeah, 15, yeah, 1502 was Java, and then okay, right. 15, okay, got you, got you. And so, 1502 is when he switched his major from Compi to CS. That was when he changed his major. Got you. <laughs> yeah, that was actually the course that actually got me because when I took it, we had to use Java to create Star Wars movie that just came out. And one of the projects that we had to do was they gave us this file of all these different points, yeah. and we had to take the file and plot the points. And it created these three-dimensional uh, figures from the movie. Yeah. And the extra credit we had was, one, you had to be able to rotate it in 3D space, 2D. And if you wrote the program properly, the extra credit didn't connect the dots. It was just points floating in space. Yeah. And it, it ended up being Yoda's head. Yeah. So okay. that... That's pretty cool. So, yeah, yeah it, was, it was a really cool project. Yeah. My favorite so, project was Pac-Man. <laughs> Oh, Pac-Man. <laughs> so now I just want to kind of give you a moment to shine. You've worked on a lot of different projects. You've accomplished a lot of things. Is there anything that you would like the listeners to know about you, any project that you're working on, or just anything about how people can connect with you online? Well, if you want to connect with me online, you can try to hit me on Twitter at Mike Dorsey Jr., but you might get a response. You may not. Instagram is probably better, even though I never update that. I probably haven't updated that since Animal Crossing came out last year. Um, <laughs> actually, I think that is my last picture on Instagram. So, yeah. Um, shooting me email is probably pretty crappy, as James can attest to. I barely read that. Um, really want to find me. You can actually find me playing Elder Scrolls Online. Uh, oh, sweet. Yeah, I play the game a lot, especially on PS4. Uh, Aaron Putty is usually my username everywhere, even though, yeah. 
And this is a random question. Don't know if you can or cannot talk about it. You worked on Amazon Alexa, Amazon Go. What were some of the coolest things about working on those projects? So I used to say, so I have a much different answer now. So I think the coolest thing about working on Alexa and working on Amazon in general was I went home. It was, I wasn't actually using technology in this foot. This, this did not happen at work. This happened when, okay, there were two instances. So one, I was at home and then my uncle called me on an Alexa device. I was kind of like, why am I getting a phone call from this dude? That doesn't make sense. That doesn't work. Um, or it does work, but why does he have one of those? I didn't set him up one of those. So I answered, and it was actually him. My uncle had multiple sclerosis at the time. Uh, he passed last year. But um, so he had multiple sclerosis, and it's pretty much bedridden. Well, he had his wheelchair and everything else. But generally, for the most part, he can't really move. He couldn't really move around the way he wanted to. So he needed all these all this extra technology and he had his phone and everything else. And so he called me on it. And so we talked and I was like, okay. So we had this nice long conversation. That was pretty cool. And then I realized like, man, I actually built the feature that he used to call me. That's like actually pretty stinking cool. That's actually pretty amazing. <laughs> I, I like that. I like that it worked. It was actual Alexa, call, Alexa calling. So, oh, Alexa calling. Oh, you built that. So I built a lot of the, so I built the media exchange format. So in order for, these things like this to work or for that to work, you have to speed a protocol called SIP. So basically implementing SIP via media channel transfer there, that's called turn. It's a whole bunch of stun. But so I went ahead and built the turn the original turn implementation for Alexa devices to actually be able to call one another and exchange media. So industry standard stuff, big server, try to figure out how to get the server and how to get the messages to like get your Alexa device connected to this server another Lex device type that one and then do the communication stuff so the media can actually transfer. So yeah, so that was the initial implementation of that. And so having him call me on that was like, wow, that's actually pretty cool. You made like a difference. That. Yeah. So I was like, okay, so this tool that I always say I built for rich people to like be able to get stuff delivered to them and turn the lights on without them having to touch buttons because they're freaking lazy. Like it actually has some real useful impact in the world. So I was like, okay, that's cool. Nice. So yeah. Another question I had, I've heard the term before and I heard you actually say it quite a few times. What is FANG? I know it's an, is it an acronym like F-A-A-N-G? It's, it's an acronym and it usually stands for Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google. Um, oh, cause I've seen, I'm like F-A-A-N-G and I've seen it and I'm like, what is that? But I, okay. Yeah, so it's the, yeah. it's the big five. Yeah. Yeah. The big five. Um, I think Microsoft should be in there, but I don't know. Um, I don't make these acronyms. I just see people use them, and it's like, okay, I guess I'll use that one. I don't. That's something I really hate about this industry: acronyms. So many. Oh, acronyms. I'm not gonna say what company it was, but there was one company that physically had a website for acronyms oh. because there was so many. No one in the company ever said anything ever. If you looked in JIRA, it was acronyms. If you looked in Confluence, it was acronyms. And it was so bad that they literally had to create a website that had thousands of acronyms. Oh, As Amazon this, has those all over the place. Exactly. And teams, their, and teams make their own acronyms that might actually repeat. And it's just like, why and, are we? 
And that's what happened. They would, they, they would have acronyms. It would be like three letters and it would have like five, six, seven different, depending on which team you were. And we had, it came to a point that I, I had pushed with the product managers from now on, no acronyms and JIRA tickets, because it was, it made a lot more difficult when we were onboarding people that they would try to figure things out. And he's like, I, I don't know what this is. I'm just going to start <laughs> making up words and just put them in a glossary, like kangarooseless. I'm going to make that one. Now, here's my signature in the woods question that I ask everyone. It means different things to different people. What was kind of your darkest moment in your journey or in your path to getting where you are? And how did you kind of cope with it and overcome it? Ooh, darkest moment uh, in my path. And how did I overcome it? Darkest moment. And darkest doesn't have to be, you know, someone died. Darkest could be you were stuck in a position. You don't want to be there anymore. You were trying to figure out why, why am I doing this anymore? Do I want to do it anymore? What was that, that moment in your career where you, you started to second guess or say, you know what, I, I, I really need to reevaluate my life. <laughs> when did I decide to reevaluate my life? Um, dark moments. That's a good one. Uh, I can't talk about that when that really upset people. Um, <laughs> I'm not worrying about exciting people. If it's something you want to talk about. Uh, I don't even want to talk about that. Um, actually, you know, I could talk about that. Um, it was probably darkest moment was probably when I had this mistaken notion that I could actually save uh, when I say save people, it's more of a save poor, unfortunate black people from their from their own self-destructive behavior. Um, because I was under this mistaken notion that, you know, all you really need to do is change a person's environment and make sure that the essential mass hierarchy and need is taken care of. And then you can help set them up onto various careers of success. So this was sometime in my mid twenties, um, before got progressive, had pretty good job, pretty good income. And I was actually making a good amount of stock income. So dividend trades, trading, like I was, had a pretty good day trading thing. Like, okay. So, you know, one of my childhood friends who I don't, he's not in prison now. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't talked to him in like probably a decade. Maybe five years. So. so I had this idea that, hey, you know, since he's my guy, brother, what I'm going to do is when he gets up, I'm going to go ahead, set him up with like, hey, we're going to start this business and I'm going to get you in on this day trading thing and with a whole bunch of sponsorships from various companies, organizations that like to give grants to reduce recidivism, we will actually get you set up for success. So that was the plan. So I got him a whole bunch of grants. Like, all right, so we're going to start your day trading and we're going to start your business because nobody's going to hire you because you didn't have any job skills when you got locked up. And although I could teach you some job skills, we don't, we can probably try to get you into tech and get you working on this. This was back in 2007, probably. Yeah, 2007, yeah. 2008 or so. No, no, this was earlier, 2005, 2005, 2004. So it's like, okay, let's set you up. So, I got them set up with about a good 40K in grants. 
the software. Not much, but it was decent. And it's probably more money than he had ever seen in his entire life at that point. So, um, with that grant, set him up with an apartment and a car. I was like, okay, so we got to get you get this business started. No, you're on probation, but we can work through that. And let's just get this show on the road. So, like, okay, that's fine. However, um, during this exercise, the work that was supposed to have been done was not getting done. And then he had this crazy idea that, hey, you know, he should just go out and go back home, stay with his family. That was a definite horrible influence on him. And um, go back and sell drugs or whatever. So I was like, oh, so you got to do the thing that is not right. You got locked up and you're going to be stupid about it. Wow. Okay. Um, because although this process is slow, it's a lot faster than what you were originally were going to do anyway and do nothing. So it took me about a good six months to do that, to deal with that, um, this whole process or whatever. And so I divorced myself of this situation. Um, luckily, um, I didn't lose too much. I lost a lot of time. I think I lost a lot of time. That's I think that's what was really upsetting me. And it was like, all right, so this whole plan of saving the world does require one thing, and that is something that I wish I realized at the time was like people have to want to get the thing and actually be able to do it. Exactly. Uh, that took a lot for me to learn. There was also the whole how am I going to save the world thing if I can't save this one person or whatever and just do on it or whatever? It felt like Naruto at the time. Um, so basically, if you watch Naruto, you should kill Sasuke and let him go away. Um, basically, <laughs> basically, that was the lesson I got from that. So, but that took a lot of um, the whole saving the world and wanting to be its savior and do all this other grand stuff. Um, that took a lot for me to deal with on my own. So, but do you do you still feel that you can not so much save the world but help people without trying to do it all for them? Is that one of the things you learned, or you so you're beyond that? I definitely learned that. Um, really, all we're here for is to set up stepping stones for other people to be great. Really, and right. I'm okay with that. You can't just be the leapfrogger that moves everybody forward. Nobody appreciates leapfrogs anyway. Look at poor Nikola Tesla. Nobody appreciates him and everything runs on his stuff. But yeah, so yeah. Leapfrogging humanity, eh, you know, it sounds nice, but it's not really, not everybody's meant for it. And it's a hard life. Um, incremental improvements. I definitely agree with that. That's why I've, I've actually changed my uh, circle of influence. Because I, I have definitely been burned several times and came to that same realization that you can't save the world and not everyone wants to be helped. So now I'll assess people, give you advice or anything like in, in, in that realm. But it takes a lot more for me to make the effort yeah. to do that again. Yeah. So I would like to say thank you, Mike. Literally my best friend from college, you always there for me. Uh, I actually remember, you know, I came out to Seattle with you and you showed me the uh, the Alexa for the first time before anyone else knew about it. 
Uh, yeah. You were the, one of the few people who actually still looked for me after I disappeared from college because of that whole situation with that lady. So I, I <laughs> every time we, you came we up. All, we all looked for you. It's just that my talent is apparently finding people. That's why I did a great job at LexisNexis. My talent is apparently finding people. So. Yeah, so I definitely appreciate you've always been there for me. We, we've worked on some uh, projects that we didn't get through, but we'll, we'll definitely build something in the future, something that's yeah. ours. You just got to get and, me out of, off my stupid game, um, <laughs> which I'm about to go play after this. Oh, and Elder Scroll, definitely you have to ping me the name because I, I might actually, I need to uh, a new game to kind of uh, escape some things. and I need to do some things in my free time. I don't have much, but I, I definitely need to find something besides uh, YouTube. Yeah, I, I will send you that probably immediately after this. Uh, come on, come join the party. Awesome. All so right. once again, Michael, thank you. Uh, thank you for joining me for this episode of In the Woods. Be sure to sign up to our email list at uh, moreinthewoods.com so that you don't miss out on our next episode. And follow me at William Moore, the author. If you have any questions or anything that you'd like me to speak about in a future episode or in a blog article, uh, definitely hit me up on any of my social medias. Uh, I'm James Woods, also known as William Moore, and thank you for listening. It's been a pleasure. See you.